I love that. Jesus has swallowed up death in victory, and it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. That's why we're here today. We come together on Easter to celebrate a risen Savior. And we're not talking about some event in the distant past that has no connection to us. The victory of Jesus is also our victory. Because Jesus came back to life, we can have the hope of being raised from the dead. And all of us who belong to Jesus, we can literally laugh in the face of death. We can say, listen, death, where's your victory? Where's your sting? Sorry, it's over. You lost. That's why Easter is so exciting. Now, in case you don't know me, my name is Doug Hartley. I'm the senior minister here, and I want to welcome all of you here this morning. I'm glad you decided to join us because this is a big day. And you know, for more than 40 years now, I've spent every Easter Sunday in a place like this, going back to this old story, remembering what happened, and trying to celebrate what it means for us. Now, my plan is to keep that streak going for the rest of my life, because I never want to take this story for granted. If you're like me and you have a habit of being in church on Easter, you probably know what we talk about around this time. You know that we go to the Bible and we focus on the events that happened early in the morning on that very first Easter. We usually talk about the empty tomb and the women and the disciples who showed up and and saw that Jesus was gone. And we talk about how Jesus started appearing to people, proving that he was alive. And it is true, that is the core of the story. But today, we're going to look at Easter from a little different angle. And we're going to look at something that happened not in the early morning, but later on in the afternoon. And we're going to meet two characters that have the most amazing encounter of their lives. These two characters were disciples of Jesus. And they were in Jerusalem when Jesus died on the cross. They were also in Jerusalem when Jesus rose from the dead. They even heard reports that he was alive. The problem was, though, they just didn't believe it. This idea of a resurrection, it sounded crazy, outlandish, just unbelievable. So you know what they did? They walked away on Easter Sunday. Resurrection Day. They left Jerusalem sad, discouraged, and hopeless. Now, can you imagine being that close to the best news ever and then just turning away like it never even happened? Think about it. Put yourself in their shoes. What if you lived through the biggest event in history, but somehow you completely missed it? As I was thinking about that question the past couple weeks, I remembered a story that came out of World War II. It's a part of history that's really amazing, but it's also really sad. It's the story of a man named Hiro Onoda. So we're going to take a little uh, side trail just for a minute. Because I want to tell you about this guy. Onoda was a Japanese Army intelligence officer And he not only fought in World War II, he also kept fighting more than 29 years after the Japanese surrendered. You know why? 
because he didn't know that the war was over. 29 years. Now, how did that happen? Well, I'll tell you. Onoda joined the Japanese army at age 20, and he was specifically trained in guerrilla warfare. He was taught to go behind enemy lines and just make life miserable for Japan's enemies and also to gather intelligence at the same time. On December 26, 1944, Onoda was sent to Lubang Island in the Philippines, and he received these orders. His orders said, you are absolutely forbidden to die by your own hand. It may take three years, it may take five, but whatever happens, we'll come back for you. Until then, so long as you have one soldier, continue to lead him. You may have to live on coconuts. If that's the case, live on coconuts. Those were his orders. And just two months after Anoda arrived, Lubang Island was conquered by the Allied forces. And the remaining Japanese troops, they split off into small groups and scattered into the jungle. And most of those groups were killed pretty quickly, but Anoda's group of four survived, and they continued to use guerrilla tactics. They harassed the enemy, they raided local farms, they learned to live in the jungle. But then the big news happens in August 1945. Japan surrenders to the Allies. Of course, Anoda is in the jungle, and he has no idea. Later on, in October, he comes across a leaflet from the local islanders, and it said, the war ended on August 15th. Come down from the mountains. Anoda and his companions decided that was allied propaganda, so they ignored it. Over time, there were many other efforts to convince Anoda to give up. At one point, they got a B-17 bomber to drop flyers all over the jungle and these flyers were printed with an order to surrender straight from a Japanese general. But the wording on the flyer seemed a little fishy to them because it sounded like Japan had lost. And that was inconceivable to Anoda. So once again, they decided Allied propaganda. For years, Anoda and his men held out. In 1949, one of the four men deserted the group. About five years later, another was killed in a skirmish. So then for 17 more years, it was just Anoda and one other soldier in the jungle. Finally, that last companion was killed in a firefight with a Filipino patrol. That was 1972. And when that soldier's body was discovered, the Japanese realized Anoda was possibly still alive. So they sent a search party to go find them. It took over a year because he was so good at hiding by that point. But in 1974, he was discovered. Even then, Anoda refused to surrender. It wasn't until they located his old commanding officer, who by that time was working in a bookstore. That officer went to the Philippines to tell Anoda that, yes, Japan did lose the war, and now it's time to give up your weapons and surrender. Now, when this news finally sunk in, it was a crushing blow to Anoda because he was doing what he thought was his duty. But now it was clear that for 29 years he had wasted his life. You know, stories of tragedy always go along with war, but this one is unique to me. Because you see, peace had come. And Hiro Anoda completely missed it. 
Now, why do I tell that story today? Well, for one, there's a definite parallel between Anoda and the biblical characters we'll see today. But there's something else here. See, there is a possibility that some of us here will be at church today. We'll hear this big news that Jesus is alive and somehow it just won't make a difference. It is possible to enter this room, sit through this service, and walk away unchanged. But I'm praying that doesn't happen today. I'm praying that the truth will penetrate each of our hearts. The truth is, peace has come through Jesus, and it's available to all of us. Now, I can say that, but has it sunk in yet? Well, if you have a Bible with you, let's go to Luke chapter 24, and let's talk about these two characters who somehow missed out on the resurrection. Earlier, I said they walked away from Jerusalem, so let's pick up the story right there in Luke 24, starting with verse 13. It says, now that same day, and by the way, what day is that? Easter, right? This is the first Easter. That same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus about seven miles from Jerusalem. So they're leaving the city, and they're walking out to a small village. And I was thinking about how far away that would be from here, and it's a pretty good hike. Um, If we all took a walk down Nagel Road and then turned north on 27, seven miles would get us right up to UDF. According to Google Maps, that would take us about two and a half hours to walk that far. And that means if we leave right now, we could be eating ice cream by 2 p.m. But we'd also miss lunch, so it's not a good plan. Now, back in Bible times, people walked all over the place. Seven miles wasn't that big of a deal. But this particular walk must have felt especially long because these guys were traumatized. Their leader Their teacher, their hero, had just died a violent death. And they were reeling, just trying to make sense of it. Let's look at the next few verses. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. And as they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them. But they were kept from recognizing him. So out of the blue, here's Jesus. He'd already appeared to other disciples several times that day, and now he shows up on the road next to these travelers. I know it's impossible to know what was in Jesus' mind here, but I like to to think about it this way. I like to think about him seeing these guys from a distance and then saying to himself, oh, this is going to be fun, (laughs) and then walking up to him. Now, that may not be accurate at all, but we do know that Jesus was intentionally starting a conversation. And that last verse is interesting, isn't it? They were kept from recognizing him. What's going on there? Well, it is possible that God prevented them from recognizing Jesus. It's also possible that these two men were so convinced that Jesus was dead and so wrapped up in their own despair that they were just preoccupied and they took him for a stranger. Now, Right at that point, Jesus asks them a question. Verse 17, he asked them, What are you discussing together as you walk along? That question stopped them in their tracks. They stood still. 
their faces downcast. And one of them, named Cleopas, asked him, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? To them, it sounds like this stranger must have been living under a rock. And I do want to point out here that we just learned one of the names of these two men, Cleopas, right? We never learned the name of the second man, and I want you to file file that back and remember it because it'll come up again later. But how does Jesus respond when Cleopas says, don't you know the things that have just happened in Jerusalem? Well, again, in my imagination, I think of Jesus responding with the tiniest little smile, like maybe one corner of his mouth turns up slightly and he says, what things? Now, of course Jesus knows what things have happened. He was at the center of all of it. But he doesn't reveal his identity just yet. First, he takes the time to listen, which is interesting. And these men just pour their hearts out. They say, we're we're talking about Jesus of Nazareth. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed, before God and all the people. And the chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. We had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. Now, don't miss that line there. We had hoped that he was the one. In other words, we really believed that Jesus was the Messiah. We, we thought that after all these years, he was the one who was promised. He was the one who would set things right for our nation and for us. And this is what crushed the spirit of these two men. They were grieving over Jesus, this leader they loved. They were also grieving for all of Israel. See, for Cleopas and his friend, the crucifixion just destroyed their hope. The bad news clouded their ability to see the good news that was right in front of them. You know, for some of us, it's not that different today. Some people today have been through so much, and they're dealing with so much grief, they've just let go of hope. And if that's where you are, you may come to a service like this, you may hear this great news, and you might just miss it because you don't see how this news makes a difference in your life. You know, Cleopas and his friend were like that. They had heard this great news. In the next few verses, they they talk about how the women came back from the empty tomb, and and these women were, were telling that Jesus was alive. But that just seemed unbelievable. It was too good to be true. Now, by this point in the story, I'm kind of ready for Jesus to do something, right? I mean, these guys are hurting. Isn't it it time for a big reveal? Jesus could jump out and say, surprise, it's me. Jesus, you didn't recognize me, but I'm alive. You see the, the nail marks in my hands? But he doesn't do that. Instead, he decides to have a Bible study with these guys as they walk along the road. Listen to this, verse 26. Jesus says, Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Now, this is just the coolest image. Remember, this walk would take about two and a half hours, so they had a lot of time to listen to Jesus. And there they were, 
listening to the greatest teacher explain the greatest news from the greatest book. He went back through the Old Testament, sharing how those old stories and those old prophecies all pointed to the Messiah. It was all about Him. And we don't know exactly what passages Jesus taught here, but we do know that He wanted them to understand that it was always a part of God's plan for the Messiah to suffer. So it could be that Jesus quoted from the book of Isaiah, chapter 53, where it says, but He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities, and the punishment punishment that brought us peace was on Him, and by His wounds we are healed. So the Messiah had to suffer, and why? Well, He was pierced for our transgressions. He suffered and He died to take the punishment for our sins, the punishment that we deserved to pay. And He did that out of love. He did that because unless our sin was paid for and removed, you and I would never have a way to get to God. See, Jesus knew the truth. For Jesus, the crucifixion was a necessary part of the story, but He also knew all along that it wasn't the end. Yes, Jesus had to suffer and die, but it was also a part of the plan that He would rise again. The resurrection is the ultimate proof that Jesus was not just a man. He was God. He had power over death itself. And the whole identity of Jesus hinges on the resurrection. If Jesus did not, die for, did not rise from the dead, then absolutely, you feel free to ignore anything He said. But if it's true, if He did overcome death, And all of us need to sit up and pay attention. Now, some people think it's crazy to believe in a literal resurrection. And it also sounded crazy to these men on the road to Emmaus. But the great news of Easter is that the resurrection actually happened. When did Cleopas and his friend come to that conclusion? Was it when they saw Jesus? No. Was it when he explained the Old Testament scriptures? No, not even then. It wasn't until they reached their destination. It was almost evening when they got to Emmaus and they invited Jesus to stay with them and have dinner. And right there is where it happened. Let's read verse 30. When he was at the table with them, he broke bread, gave thanks. He took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened. And they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? Now, this is fascinating, isn't it? They didn't recognize Jesus when he met them on the road. They didn't recognize him when he took all that time to explain the scriptures and what it said about himself. But then, as soon as he passes the bread at dinner, that was the, that was the moment. That's when their eyes were opened. So why did it happen right then? Well, I can't say for sure, but I think we should pay close attention to what Jesus was doing in that moment of recognition. What did he do? Jesus took bread, gave thanks, and broke it. Now, does that sound familiar? To a lot of us, it probably does, because back in Luke chapter 22, 
on the night of the Last Supper, what did Jesus do? He took bread, gave thanks, and broke it. Now, I don't believe Cleopas and his friend were even in that upper room when that happened, but could it be that Jesus is making a connection here to the meal that we call the Lord's Supper? This is a memorial meal that's taken place in the church for almost 2,000 years. Followers of Jesus come together and remember His death, His sacrifice. We take the bread and we drink from the cup. And in that meal, Jesus reveals Himself to us. Now, is that what Jesus was thinking about in this story? I don't know. It's certainly possible. But the point is, all of us are a lot like these two men. We need to open our eyes and open our hearts to who Jesus is and what he means to us. And at that dinner in the little village of Emmaus, Cleopas and his friend opened their eyes. They finally knew that Jesus was alive again. These weren't just rumors. It was true. And the resurrection proves that Jesus changes everything. There was an instant change for these men. Verse 33 says, They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the eleven and those with them assembled together and saying, It is true, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. Then the two, the characters in our story, they told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. Such a huge contrast from the beginning of the story, right? At the beginning, they were discouraged and hopeless, and now they're celebrating and sharing stories about their own encounters with Jesus. Now, they didn't know what the future held at that point, but now they were content to put their future into the hands of Jesus, their risen Savior. So that was them. But what about us? If the resurrection changed everything for Cleopas and his fellow traveler, what does it change for us? Well, here's the bottom line. Because of the resurrection, we know the war is over. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, at one point or another, all of us, every one of us here, we all declared war against God. You may not remember that, but it happened when we sinned against God. We broke His laws. We defied His will those actions put us in a state of war against God. And there was no way we would ever win that war unless someone else stepped in to save us. And that's what Jesus did. He died to pay for our sin. He has offered us forgiveness and eternal life as a gift. He won the victory against sin and death. And He's willing to extend that victory to us. So because of Jesus... We can have peace with God in this life, but then it goes beyond this life. Because of Jesus, we can have peace with God forever. And the resurrection is the evidence. It's the proof that this hope is not just wishful thinking. It's for real. God's desire is that everyone would live forever in heaven with Him. And He has the power to offer that gift and through Jesus, He has offered that gift. So that's the good news that we're talking about today. But now, what if you heard the biggest news in history, but somehow you completely missed it? 
What if you heard that Jesus was alive and that God is offering this gift of life to you? But that news isn't reaching your heart because your eyes just aren't open. I would call that a tragedy. I bring that up because I'm confident there are people in this room today who haven't quite bought into all of this. So why would that be? Well, for just a minute, let's consider this. What are some possible reasons why you might close your eyes to the good news of Easter? There are lots of potential reasons, but I'll mention just two this morning. The first one is doubt. Doubt. After all, the idea of someone coming back to life after being completely dead, that that is kind of out there, isn't it? I think it's funny that Easter coincides with April Fool's Day this year. Uh, The other day, I I saw someone post an idea that combined Easter and April Fool's. They said, here's what you do. You make cake pops that look completely normal on the outside, but then on the inside, you got Brussels sprouts. That's kind of genius, isn't it? Now, if anybody uses that idea, please get some video because I want to see people eat that. Um, but have you ever had that experience of being pranked? You know, sometimes it can be funny, but in the end, nobody wants to feel like an idiot. For some people, Easter may seem like an extension of April Fool's Day. They feel like the resurrection is just, it's not believable. And they don't want to be taken in. Now, if that's you... I just want to share something. And and this may seem like a strange thing for a preacher to say, but you know what? If I was hearing about the resurrection for the first time today and I'd never heard before in my life what this was all about, I'd have to agree. It would sound a little unbelievable to me too. I mean, think about it this way. What if one of you came to me this morning and said, hey, Doug, the craziest thing happened. On, on our way to church, we saw this dead person come back to life. What am I going to say to that? You know, am I going to say, wow, I totally believe you? No, my first instinct would be that you are mistaken or lying or nuts. So then, why do I believe that the resurrection of Jesus really happened? It's not just a story. It's not just a legend. Is it because my parents and other people told me that it was true? Early on, that was the case. But over time, I began looking for my own reasons to believe. And you know what? I've found a lot of very compelling evidence. I find more every year, especially as I'm preparing for Easter. This time around, I learned something very interesting from this passage from Luke 24. Now, a few minutes ago, I told you to remember that we're only given one name for the two men in this story, the two men on the road. It's Cleopas, right? Now, when Luke wrote this gospel, why would he give us one name but not two? It would make sense if he named both of the men. It would also make sense if he gave neither name but just one. Why did Luke do that? Well, there's a scholar named Richard Bauckham. And he argues that in the Bible, proper names are often used like footnotes. 
It's like when you read an article on Wikipedia and you, being a smart person, you don't believe everything you read because you know that people can just get on Wikipedia and make stuff up. But as you read those articles, you often see a little number at the end of a sentence. And it's a footnote that points you to the original source for that information. It's a way for you to do your own fact-checking on the article. So in the Bible, how would proper names accomplish the same purpose as a footnote? Well, according to Richard Bauckham, Cleopas is mentioned because he's still alive at the time Luke was writing. It's like Luke is saying, hey, this is what happened, and if you don't believe me, you can go ask Cleopas. He's still here. You can see other examples of this in the Gospels too, like when Jesus is on the road to Calvary. And Simon of Cyrene helps him carry the cross. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all mention Simon. But only Mark says that Simon is the father of Alexander and Rufus. So now, why would Mark mention the two sons, Alexander and Rufus? Well, because at the time Mark was writing, most likely the earliest gospel, those boys were still alive. So they were like footnotes. If you, go, if you have questions, go ask them. Ask Alexander and Rufus. Now, I, I could bring up lots of other good reasons to believe that the resurrection is a true historical event. And if you want to hear more, I'd love to talk to you after service or you can contact me later. But I'll also say this. If doubt is holding you back, I want to encourage you to just try letting down your guard Maybe you don't want to be taken in. And maybe you're like, yeah, I can see through this. I, I can see through these fairy tales. People want it to be true, so they believe it to be true. I can see through it. I want to share a quote from C.S. Lewis. Lewis said, you can't go on seeing through things forever. The whole point of seeing through something is to see something through it to see through all things is the same as not to see. Some say it's not possible to know truth. It's not possible to know God. To see through all things is the same as not to see. So for just a moment, is it plausible to believe that the one who created all of life could also bring someone back to life? I believe it's plausible and I encourage you to be open to that possibility. For some, though, doubt really isn't the issue. It's more about disappointment. And you resonate with these characters in the story when they said, we had hoped that he would be the one. You've lost hope because you thought your life was going to go a certain way. You thought that God would answer your prayers in a certain way, but it hasn't turned out like you hoped. Maybe you lost something that was very important to you, or you lost someone who was very important to you. And the disappointment is so deep that it's just, it's hard to open your eyes to the good news of the resurrection. There's a book by David Smith called Moving Towards Emmaus, and in that book, he says something that I believe is true. Smith writes, our world is full of people walking away from Jerusalem in despair with the words we had hoped on their lips. Just like Cleopas and his friend, 
There are people today who are so focused on bad news that it's just hard to see the good news. It's hard to believe the good news. And if that's you today, if you feel like the resurrection is not good news that changes your life right now, I want you to consider something. Is it possible that you've been mistaken? Is it possible that God would take away your disappointment and your discouragement and fill you with peace and hope and even joy? I believe it is possible. And if it is, you don't want to waste another minute living in darkness. Remember Hiro Onoda? The war was over. Peace had come. But he kept on fighting for 29 years you think he had any regrets about that? Of course he did. Later on in life, he wrote about what it felt like in that moment when his eyes were opened. And here's what he wrote. Suddenly, everything went black. We really lost the war. A storm raged inside of me. I felt like a fool. And worse than that, what had I been doing all these years? Had the war really ended 30 years ago? If what was happening was true, wouldn't it have been better if I had died with my companions? That's the regret of someone who was living at war when they could have been living in peace. I don't want to see any of us carrying that kind of regret because there's no need for it. The war is over. Jesus has won the victory against sin and death. He's willing to make his victory your victory. So here's what we need to do this morning. Like the men on the road, it's time to open our eyes. Open our eyes to the truth that Jesus is not only alive, he's right here with us. You know, many of us here have already made the decision to follow Jesus and so some of us just need to be reminded of the hope that we have. This hope not only for the future, but also for the present. For others in this room, it may be that you don't have this hope yet. Because you never claimed this gift of forgiveness and salvation and eternal life. But I want you to know, you can do that today. You can choose to believe in Jesus. That all of this is for real you can turn away from your old life, turn away from your sin, confess Jesus as your Lord, be baptized into Christ, and go on and live a new life completely at peace with God. If you're ready to make that decision, I'll give you some instructions at the end of the service. But first, we're going to do something special. We're going to have our own walk to Emmaus. Now, every week at our church, we include the Lord's Supper and an offering as a part of our worship. And usually, you stay right where you are, and we pass trays with bread and grape juice, and we pass the offering plates. But today, we're doing things a little differently. We're giving you the chance to follow in the footsteps of these travelers who walked with Jesus. In a moment, I'm going to pray and the band will come and play some music quietly. And then whenever you're ready, you can go for a walk. Now, we would ask that wherever you're sitting, you would walk up these two aisles, here and here. So if you're in the center, you could come down and then up. And then make your way to one of those two tables in the back of the room. 
Each table will have two lines, one on the left and one on the right. And when you get to the table, you'll see the bread and the cup. And you can remember that night of the Lord's Supper when Jesus took bread, gave thanks, and broke it. And you can remember that night in the little village of Emmaus when two men opened their eyes to the presence of Jesus. And then if you are a follower of Christ, we invite you to eat the bread and drink the cup, the bread that represents the body of Jesus, the juice that represents the blood of Jesus. Now let me say, if you're here today and all of this is new to you and and you haven't made a commitment to Jesus, don't feel obligated to do this. You can stay where you are if you prefer. But whoever you are, And whatever your situation is, this time is an invitation to open your eyes and be aware of the presence of Christ. Be aware of the hope that he gives us. Now, once you've finished at the table, we're going to have a time of worship and celebration together. And and like I was saying, part of the way we worship here is to give an offering to God And we're not going to pass the plates today, but you do have an opportunity to give at the basket on either side of both tables as you walk away. So giving is one form of worship, but we're also going to sing together. We're going to celebrate this good news, this great news, the biggest news in history, that Jesus is alive and he changes everything. Let's pray. Father, as we come today and, and we hear this story and we hear this news that's been repeated so many times over the centuries, I know it's possible, either out of familiarity or doubt or disappointment, it's possible for us to walk away unchanged, but I pray that doesn't happen. I pray that you will make us aware of your presence in this room right now, that it's all for real, that this life is not about this life that we can look forward to real life, eternity. As long as we belong to you, as long as we are in Christ, we have the hope of eternal life. And that makes such a difference right here and right now. I pray that you'll take this time. This will be genuine worship from our hearts. I pray that you will reveal yourself to us. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.